manufacturers and employers stuck to the central city. You couldn't really move people and goods in that volume until a genius called Henry Ford comes along. It starts in, in 1916 in New York City and spreads very rapidly. Berkeley adopts it the same year. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a nationwide thing. It's not a regional thing. You don't have any perfective covenants. Uh, there's nothing you can do about that. That person's using property for whatever he wants to do. The great housing boom of the 1920s is really touched off by zoning's legitimacy. Middle-class people don't have a lot of ways to hedge against inflation, but they have one thing that is a really turns out to be a really good hedge against inflation, and that is called owning a house. It's easier to round up people if they're all worried about the same thing. If he's a homeowner, he's almost surely not diversifying. All his eggs are in one basket, and he's got to protect that basket. I am a little more anxious about getting the federal government involved. Here's what I think changed zoning, what changed the path of zoning. Bill, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to discuss your book, Zoning Rules. We've got a lot to cover today. I have put together a list of a lot of questions I have about zoning. It's a topic that's pretty new to me. Um, so I think maybe it makes sense to, to start this conversation. Why don't we first set the ground floor here and explain at a high level what zoning is and why you decided to dedicate so much time to studying the topic of zoning? Okay, so, so let me give it a, a sort of historical setting here. Put yourself back uh, 110 years ago or so in the United States, uh, not in the middle of a big city, but near a big city, maybe in the suburbs, maybe in the outer edge of the same city. Uh, there are suburbs back then. And, and um, you are a, a middle-class person who goes to the city itself. You commute to the city. You commute on a streetcar. A tro- you know, it would be a trolley car by that time. It'd be electrified. And, um, and you've got this nice little house in the suburbs somewhere. Uh, and suddenly you see, not suddenly, eventually your, your, your spouse may point out that something funny is going down, uh, on down the street. Uh, instead of residential houses, which you uh, really would like to have residential neighbors, you're okay with that, um, uh, somebody's putting up a pretty large building in which they propose to put uh, a, a storage unit for furniture. Or maybe it's an apartment house, uh, or maybe it's a, a factory or a livery, not a livery stable, a gas station, a newfangled uh, thing for servicing cars. And you, so you go to your neighbor and say, well, what can we do about that? This, this, it, I, I, all these things are necessary, but they're kind of close to their residential areas. They used to be, you know, I go to the big city and we go down there, we see it. But I, when I come back to, out to the, uh, outer parts in the suburbs, I don't want to see that stuff. And uh, your neighbors uh, say, well, why don't we talk to a lawyer? And the lawyer says, well, you don't have any perfective covenants. Uh, there's nothing you can do about that. That person's using property for whatever he wants to do. And, um, uh, and, and maybe even if you do have protective covenants, they, it might be on the edge of those protective covenants, or they may have lapsed, or they're just very difficult to enforce. And so 
you say this isn't the, this is a kind of worrisome thing, partly because I own my own house. Uh, it's a big investment for me. Uh, I may even have a mortgage uh, that that I have to pay off. And in any event, it's a lot of my assets. And if that thing is going to affect badly affect my house, uh, uh, my wealth is going to be uh, reduced, uh, maybe substantially. And so you get together with your neighbors and uh, they say, no, there's nothing we can do in the law right now. But we've heard of this new thing uh, called uh, districting, they called it back then. Uh, we call it zoning now because they divide the city into districts or zones in which some things are allowed and other things are not allowed. And so you go down to City Hall, you and your neighbor go down to City Hall and ask the city council to pass a law uh, promoted by uh, by uh, Mr. Edward Bassett. He's the father of zoning in the New York area, at least. And uh, and Mr. Bassett says, yes, you can do this. Uh, and here's here's what you can do with your zoning laws. You can uh, uh, divide your community up into various areas uh, and say residential, single families allowed here, residential, multifamily is allowed here. Uh, in some places, you might well allow both of those things. But uh, uh, warehouses and garages and apartments are in another zone. Uh, we need those things, but, uh, but they don't belong in the single family area or the other residential area. And so uh, you're about to pass this law and some, the, the city councilman says, well, wait a minute, won't, won't, what if we have a property owner who wants to build this, uh, this nice, uh, this big furniture warehouse in the residential areas, own the land? Um, He's got plans, but he hasn't put it up yet. Uh, won't he sue us? Won't he say, I, you're, you're taking my property, you're taking some of my property rights? And so you go back and consult with Mr. Bassett, Edward Bassett, the, uh, and he says, I've researched this quite thoroughly, and as long as you don't make him take down an existing use, you're golden. He has no right to future uses of his property, that, uh, that future regulation. And so you pass this zoning law, and this protects your property uh, from from these neighborhood adverse impacts. They're not necessarily nuisances, and nuisance law, uh, some people say this, this is just a branch of nuisance law, and I say that is not, that is practically not true. Nuisance law, you have to find the nuisance has to exist first. Secondly, you have to uh, find out what the impact is. Uh, third, you have to get a court to this issue an order and so forth. And that just takes forever and you'll never get it done. Uh, and, and so, uh, and, and anyway, many of these things, apartment houses aren't really nuisances. Uh, you may have seen Jacob Reese's uh, the, the Other Half Lives, those photographs of New York tenement houses, but he's trying to make them look bad, actually. Uh, Reese is a bit, a bit of a provocateur with these photos. And so, so the judge is going to, in its case, says, no, it's not really a nuisance. People, they're poor people are going to live somewhere. Uh, uh, so the zoning that doesn't have to rise to a nuisance uh, and, uh, as long as your zoning law provides something, some place for people to live, some people, place for businesses to operate. So zoning starts out as what I call, and actually some people, in the, uh, one of the uh, uh, progenitors of the legal theory of zoning, James Metzenbaum, uh, said uh, a place for everything, but everything in its place. So you don't put 
the uh, the, the bathroom materials in in the uh, the dining room. Uh, you don't put uh, the dining room table in the living room, uh, but you have those places for everything in your house. And drawing by analogy, you you and, and so zoning actually proved to be quite popular. Tentatively, until until from it started in, in 1916 in New York City and spreads very rapidly. Berkeley adopts it the same year. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a nationwide thing. It's not a regional thing. Um, and the big cities first do it, but then the suburbs jump on it right very, very quickly. But they're all a little bit tentative about what they can do because they're worried that uh, the, the courts will uh, will overturn this. Despite what Mr. Bassett has told you, that if you have a reasonable uh, police power, is the regulatory power, uh, you're, you're golden here. Uh, and he, uh, and, and it's, but all other places are kind of tentative about this. Can we do this? Are we going to get stuck with a big bill? Will we get sued all the time? And so a case finally comes up to the, the state courts are kind of split on it. Some state courts think, no, it is a taking. And so Minneapolis and Minnesota uh, adopts a zoning law where they, they pay the property owners for, for the supposed devaluation of their property. Uh, it's really quite unworkable. I've actually looked at those cases. It's, it's, they're all over the lot. Other states say design's just fine. Uh, uh, New York says no, no problem. Um, finally, they get a case from Ohio, the city of Euclid, which is a suburb of, of, of Cleveland, um, a name for the famous geometer, of course, and uh, the, the uh, uh, a, a property owner who wants to put an industrial area in a residential area. Uh, uh, so the prototypical zoning no-no, uh, uh, and, and Euclid has adopted a zoning law, courtesy of Mr. Metzenbaum, and says that uh, uh, it says he can't do that. And so he says, you've taken my property. You've devalued my property by uh, 75%. That's, it was never really tested how much that big number was, but it, and it goes up to the, uh, uh, to the courts. The district court says, oh, that's a taking your property, that's that's a classification of people by their income. And it sounds very modern in the district court, the lower court, in federal court, and and rules for the landowner. And so the, the uh, planning establishment gets behind uh, uh, this, this little suburb called Euclid, Ohio, and appeals it to the U.S. Supreme Court. And lo and behold, the U.S. Supreme Court sides with the municipality. In a sweeping case called Euclid v. Ambler, that's the, the, the in, in 1926. So it's just coming. It's coming up. Uh, its hundredth anniversary is in a couple of years, um, and uh, says that uh, no, that's that's a perfectly legitimate use of the police power. It might go too far sometimes, but classifying these these uses within communities is not a big deal. They analogize it to nuisance law. Uh, which makes people think it is nuisance law. It's not really nuisance law. It's really a classification of, of property. And then zoning really does take off. Zoning becomes very popular. Uh, almost every community advertises it has zoning. And it turns out that zoning, at least in this instance, my suspicion is, I won't say I have all the data to back this up, is that the great housing boom of the 1920s is really touched off by zoning's legitimacy. Because now developers of single-family houses can go out into the suburbs and even rural areas and say, 
we're going to put up single family houses and you buyers of houses don't have to worry because they were getting a lot of sales resistance. This was certainly the case in Southern California where developers were saying, yeah, we got this great product, uh, single family houses, uh, and we've, we've got mortgages we can, we can uh, place with you. Uh, and buyers are saying, yeah, but what about the uh, industrial area that shows up next door to me or the big apartment house that shows up next door? So the question backing up here is why, why now? Why do, why do the apartment houses and the industrial uses start showing up in the suburbs? Weren't they confined to the central city? They were confined to the central city when the main means of transportation of both commuters and goods was railroads or shipping. So if you were a manufacturer, you had to locate near a port or near a railhead where the train would stop and load your goods. and you, you had uh, uh, street railroads, uh, com, uh, street ra commuter uh, railroads uh, uh, and, and trolley cars that would deliver people. But out in the suburbs, you couldn't really move people and goods in that volume. And so manufacturers and employers stuck to the central city until a genius called Henry Ford comes along. And he makes an invention the Model T, he didn't invent the automobile. The automobile had been around for a while, but it was a rich man's plaything. It was sort of like the Tesla of its time. Uh, it's, it's not something that, uh, that ordinary people would, would have. And it's also not something ordinary businesses would use very much. It's expensive. Ford invents a standardized product, the Model T, that is useful for moving people. But more important, it's useful to be converted into a small truck a freight moving device, or a jitney bus, which can move people at a very low cost, and they can go out in the suburbs and collect people and move them around. And moreover, businesses can move, can be out in the suburbs and collect <clears throat> and, and move freight to their shipping points or move their employees to the suburbs. And so businesses and apartment houses become footloose. They're not stuck in the central city anymore. The railroads stuck them on lines, and they had to stay on those lines. The automobile and the jitney bus and the motor truck, uh, used to be called the motor truck, now it's just the truck, uh, that liberated businesses from the central city, put them in the suburbs, and overwhelmed the suburbs. These suburban single-family home dwellers were unhappy about this. Sure, they could get to work faster, but so could everybody else <laughs> right, next to, right in their neighborhood. And so zoning was a response to this invasion. I mean, invasion is too strong a word, but this strong tendency of businesses to start decentralizing, putting their stuff out in the suburbs, and, and, and apartment, dweller, apartment developers saying, yeah, that's a nice apartment, a good school, so I'll build a big apartment out here. And the neighbors were not happy about it. Uh, they're, they're not happy about either of those things anymore, but pretty much they can't do it with, uh, unless they change the zoning laws, which is a, a very difficult thing to do. So anyway, zoning chugs along, and it actually survives through the Great Depression, 
and starts going on in the 1950s, post-World -war, post War II, uh, and there's lots of development out there in the suburbs. And these are mostly in zoned communities. The problem is that the, zone, that the developments themselves become kind of annoying to people who are already there. Usually higher income people, you wouldn't be surprised, are not too happy to see Bill Levitt build his houses out on Long Island, in Levittown, Long Island, in Levittown, New Jersey, in Levittown, Pennsylvania. He was quite prolific. Uh, uh, these these uh, 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 little ticky-tacky boxes, that, uh, as, a, as the song goes. Uh, uh, but, but buyers love them. <laughs> uh, and and so we have these post-war the veterans come back. They want to they can get a VA mortgage. They can get move out to the suburbs and uh, and be free of that uh, the, those noxious uses in 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 downtown cities that uh, didn't have playgrounds. Okay, they could play stickball, but they couldn't uh, go out to the playground. Um, and, and and they love it. The people in on the suburbs don't love it all that much. But the fact is, there's not a lot they can do about it. They go to their city council and say, well, this is we don't like this development very much. We loved that farm field before. And the city council says, yeah, but there's only a couple of you who are complaining about this, and we don't really have the right to just stop them. It's zoned for what we did. We can't just pull the rug out of, uh, of, of, beneath Mr. Levitt. Uh, he, he would have a case in that case, in that situation. Um, and so, and so they, so city dwell, existing suburban dwellers are kind of shut out. Uh, they 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 like that farm field. They like that open space. They like that. Well, they called the wetland a swamp, but they 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 they, they, they liked seeing the birds and, and things like that. That's why they moved there. It's hard to blame them too much. Um, but they but uh, there wasn't a lot they could do. Here's what I think changed zoning, what changed the path of zoning into a, uh, the, 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 our, our current situation. One is the environmental movement starts getting steam in the 1970s. And now, if you oppose development, you don't have to go to the city council. You can go to the Sierra Club. You can go to an environmental organization, the Audubon Society, who will now, with environmental legislation, which is designed to protect the birds and the, and the wilderness and clean air and clean water and things like this, not, not bad things at all. But now you've got a lever. You're, you're a disaffected suburbanite. You don't like that development. They're going to drain that swamp or they're going to fill in that, uh, that, that, that nice woodlands and, and so forth. Now you have a lever. Oh, there's an endangered species there. or Oh, there's something that you have. Uh, uh, taken into account. You haven't done an environmental impact statement cleanly enough. And now they have a way of stopping the developer, or at least diverting them to, uh, to uh, friend their crimes. The other thing that happens in the 1970s, and, and I, so I think this is an important uh, event that is still ongoing. The other thing that happens in the 1970s is we have peacetime inflation. Now, we've had inflation during World War II, but it's all suppressed by price controls and things like this. So it's not really affecting uh, housing very much. But now we have peacetime inflation because of the OPEC, the oil crisis uh, of, of, of 1972, 1970, 72. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that sends inflation up in ways that people are quite, middle-class people 
don't have a lot of ways to hedge against inflation. They don't have uh, uh, the, the usual, you can buy gold bars or something like that, but you know, what can you do with them? Uh, but they have one thing that is a really, turns out to be a really good hedge against inflation, and that is called owning a house. Because the interest on that, that you paid for that mortgage is deductible from your income taxes, but your income's going up artificially because of inflation. Uh, but the mortgage that is, is deductible, so you can do that. And the capital gain on the house is lightly taxed and eventually almost not taxed at all. So that, I mean, I discovered this almost to my heart, but it's just one of these things that delighted horror. I'm going and, and doing some estate planning, and my lawyer, who's knowledgeable about these things, says, you know, I say, oh, there's some cap on, on how much I... Uh, how much my house can go up in price before I have to pay federal taxes on it. And he said, don't worry about that. We can arrange to make a transfer to this, that, and the other thing. Perfectly legal. I'm not doing anything illegal or even shady. Uh, uh, and, and, and I'm going to transfer my house to my, you know, when I finally die, or my wife finally dies to, to my son, uh, almost tax-free. I think that's outrageous to tell the truth. Uh, no. He doesn't, you know, he's doing okay. Uh, but it does mean that that's the kind of asset that I should hold on to. I should, I should as, as a friend of mine, Chip Case, who, who was the co-author of the Case-Shiller Index, the single-family house index that became has became popular in the last 20 years or so. Chip used to say, the only thing dumber than not buying a house in 1980 was not buying two houses. Chip <laughs> uh, died a few years ago, wonderful guy. Um, uh, and, and it was because it was so tax favored, and it's still tax favored even when there isn't inflation. People started to look at their houses as something other than a blue, what I call a blue chip investment. You buy a blue chip stock, and you hold on to it for a long time, and it pays you dividends. In a house, you get the dividends of being living in it, essentially rent free, uh, and then you sell it, and somebody else moves into that house. You move to wherever. Uh, After the the 1970s, and it it took people a while to figure this out, and it took Congress a ways to respond to the the pressure to not tax capital gains on housing to come in. But by about 1980s, the houses were essentially untaxed, and housing became viewed as not just by people and bankers, but by the, by the government officials, as a growth stock. This was something you could invest in. You could buy a house, pennies down, mortgage yourself to the hill. It will go up in price. You can pay off your mortgage. You'll be rich in a few years. Uh, uh, and, and so that's how we got the subprime mortgage, by the way. We suckered in a lot of people who should never have bought houses in places where buying a house was pretty darn risky to buy houses. And when housing prices started going down, they got stuck. I mean, housing prices go, went down for me too, but I didn't lose my house on that account. I had a steady income in a place that's thoroughly zoned. Uh, so I think that was, uh, uh, any so, so the two things that pushed up these these housing prices and made housing people very sensitive to houses 
to the housing prices happened after 1970 through the 1990s and made us a nation of NIMBYs. Uh, mm. Not in my backyard is the mantra that I hear. People are now embarrassed by it, which I'm happy to hear that they're embarrassed by it. <laughs> uh, 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 but I've been on the Hanover and New Hampshire zoning board in the 1990s, and I got back on it after I retired five years ago. So, so uh, 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 NIMBYism is what runs uh, 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 small town and suburban zoning, uh, and, and uh, uh, that 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 is that is our major concern, and that is, in in my humble opinion, uh, the one of the causes, one of the major causes of our housing crisis, even our homelessness crisis. We can't build housing the way we used to. If Bill Levitt, if he came and wanted to build Levittown, one house after another, factory-style housing construction, can't get a foothold anymore. Uh, or if he can, it's in the wrong places. It's not in the decent school districts. It's not in commuting distance. Um, and, and so that's, that's where I think we are from, uh, from zoning. One, one other thing, and I'm going to do the finance thing because I know you're interested in finance. One of the things that, that caused me to, to realize that this was a problem, that it really the, the home. So I'm, I'm on the Hanover Zoning Board back in uh, sometime in the 90s, 1990s, and I'm chairing the meeting, I'm chairing the zoning board. Uh, and some developer, local guy, wants to develop houses, wants to put up houses and uh, in, in a lot, and he's a responsible guy and so forth. And in comes, you know, then we say, okay, it's our opposition to this proposal because he needs some some special exception with respect to wetland crossings. And in comes a, a neighbor, a downstream neighbor, who starts complaining about the risks of this, about how it's going to uh, 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 adversely affect the water quality, adversely affect the, uh, uh, the traffic and things like this. And I'm thinking to myself, this is, you know, this, this, this is really over the top. And then I did myself a kind of figurative dope slap. I said, wait a second. This guy is somebody I actually know. He's not crazy. He knows something. He's, he's, he's a salt-of-the-earth guy. And I think, what's he worried about? And so I kick back and think, oh, light bulb goes on in my head. I had more hair back then. Uh, light bulb goes on in my head. And say, oh, he's not worried about what? I think he should be worried about the impact of the traffic and, and so forth, which is all perfectly well controlled by the rules. He's worried about the uncertainty that this creates, the risk. He's worried not in technical terms. If you do finance, you think of the first moment, the average of what might happen, and then the second moment, the variance of what's going to happen. Now, variance in zoning means an exception, which is something we could give, but Variance in this context means the risk, which he can't control. And why is he so worried about it? Well, if he were a stockholder in a business, as a stockholder, he would read that the business is now undertaking, it's, it's got some political risk, it's got some environmental risk and something like that. And he's a stockholder, and he reads about this, and he says, Oh, that's too bad. I guess I better sell that stuff. Better sell that stuff. Why can he be be not so concerned about that? Because he owns lots of other stuff. He's diversified. 
If he's a homeowner, he's almost surely not diversifying. All his eggs are in one basket, and he's going to protect that basket. And that's what NIMBYism is about, in my opinion. It's people rationally responding to the absence of a way of insuring against the market risk of an asset that doesn't go anywhere, that's really big, and it's very site-specific. Uh, and, and so that's what, he's, what, what causes them to be what I call rationally irrational. We, we hear these things in, in, in hearings of the sort of unlikely scenarios, and we've, we members of the zoning board and members of the, the, the establishment, as it were, say, we've seen this happen. We know that if things go wrong, we can fix it. But the homeowner doesn't know that, and he doesn't know that we're responsible people. And after all, maybe there's some irresponsible, irresponsible people who will let it all happen and, and his home values will be destroyed. His dreams of retirement or sending his kids to college are going to be crashed. And so he's not crazy uh, in, in, in thinking that. Uh, right. It also makes it a lot easier to round up other people to oppose a change that you don't like. So I'm not going to name, actually, I won't even name the events here, but somebody we're, 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 we've now got some religion in Hanover and we want to put in some workforce housing. That means lower income housing. Um, and where do you put it? Well, the, uh, it's a, it's a likely spot that was identified. And, um, there is a neighbor who's quite unhappy about that possibility. In the past, he would have had a hard time getting people to show up at a meeting or sign off against, on a petition against this. And, but now all his neighbors are sort of in the same boat as he is. Of They've got this big asset. They've depended on it. They've overinvested in it and underinvested in other stuff like stocks and bonds. And, and so they need to protect that investment. And so they sign off onto this opposition with with a fair amount of regret. I mean, in the sense that a fair amount of anxiety because they understand, yeah, we need housing. We need low-income housing. We need people can't live here. Uh, but it's easier to round up people if they're all worried about the same thing. Uh, back in the day, back when in the 1950s, it was hard to round up people because people looked at their, their house as, yeah, my house will still be my house. Uh, yeah, okay, there's something else going on down the street. Why should I uh, go to a, a planning board meeting or a zoning board meeting or a city council meeting to oppose this project? Uh, my time is valuable. Uh, so, yeah, you, you, George, you can go do it, but uh, don't, don't count on me. It's a lot easier for George to round up other people now uh, because they're all hypersensitive to this investment. And, and by the way, the government now says, uh, even the Republican administrations, Democratic administrations all think, oh, yeah, the way to wealth is to buy a house. Um, yes, it is a way to wealth for the people who already got the house. <laughs> uh, but getting the house uh, has become increasingly expensive. It's just hard to make a lot of money if you have to spend a lot of money. Um, so so uh, that, that, I think, is the, is the, the evolution of our problem. Uh, right. That's a thorough review. I love that. that. Thank you for for sharing that and just kind of laying the foundation there. Um, I have a lot more questions for you. Um, the first is, you know, going through this evolution of zoning, you talk about how 
the there you know there's a need for things to be in the right place you don't want to put your your bathroom sink in your kitchen you don't want to put you know your toilet in your living room all that stuff that makes sense to apply that to cities in my mind i, I read that and it just clicked now and so there, on the one hand there's that you want that like quiet enjoyment of your space and of your city on the other hand you want regional prosperity how do we make sure these two remain in balance that we can not only have enjoyable spaces, but also regional prosperity? Well, I'll tell you my evolution of two, two, two views of how, how we can deal with this problem. And it's the same problem. I, and you've identified this problem correctly. It's not just your neighborhood that needs protection. The whole, everybody else enjoying the same exclusionary view makes it difficult for the region to grow and, and be prosperous. Uh, and, and find jobs and find uh, build housing for for everybody. Uh, th this is a, a real problem. My first view of this, after I wrote my first book on zoning back in 1985, was, oh, it's those poor landowners who want to develop who are losing out because the U.S. Supreme Court has said you don't have to pay for zoning restrictions. That's you could the gambler. They were accepting very large potentially very large devaluations in property uh, value from, for, from zoning. And my view, really latching on to the view of a few uh, law professors who were insightful about this, who said, really, you need to give some rights back to them so that those landowner developers, I call them development-minded landowners, have more rights than they do now. And so allow them to sue the community. The community will on the prospect of a realistic prospect of having to pay damages, paying money, we'll back off and rezone for reasonable levels and we can go on from there. Uh, it's all very logical. I laid it out very you know thoroughly in a book called Regulatory Takings. You don't want you don't want regulatory takings for everything, uh, for every devaluation. Some landowners are pretty unreasonable in their development mind and stuff, but a lot of landowners you know, particularly in, in suburban communities, uh, want to do pretty much what everybody else has done. Uh, and so saying that it's, it's a nuisance to put up more single-family houses uh, shouldn't really be a claim. And if you don't want to do that, you should make the suburban community pay for it. The problem with this remedy is the courts don't want to buy it. And I finally come around to the idea that maybe the courts are okay, that, that they, they shouldn't really... Yeah, out there swinging the uh, damages acts at the uh, the necks of the suburban communities, and that's because once you let them swing that axe, they can swing the axe at almost anything. It's m making communities liable for monetary damages really opens a Pandora's box in the worst sense of not just opening up the suburbs to reasonable community development, but opening up virtually every environmentally sensitive place that we, we, you know, almost any reasonable person says need to be protected to some extent, uh, uh, opening up, uh, 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 using, using this as a wedge to uh, dismantle social programs uh, because, uh, well, uh, uh, requiring you to join a labor union is a taking of somebody's property, isn't it? It's an argument that, and that gets a serious hearing in some places, uh, even in the Supreme Court, I'd say. Um, and and so um, uh, 
this this is this is a a remedy that's that's too too good too good to be true and too slippery to expand we talk about uh, paying money money is liquid and that liquid is very difficult to contain it's not just like even even as water you know water is difficult to contain if you own a house with a basement you know that um and 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 t telling courts they should award damages for this kind of zoning but not that kind of zoning the courts don't want to buy it it's impossible for them to distinguish between one and another they're not experts in in, in these things uh very seldom even when you get expert courts they're all over the lot about it so i i've i've concluded that that remedy is terribly successful there's two other remedies and one has been embraced and i'm a little less enthusiastic than some people but i think it's okay and that is state governments have now said hey you local governments you're screwing up the regional economy you've got to build more housing so we in new hampshire have a governor we also have a a, a state that loves local government we are we are the uh, local government uh capital of the united states uh uh, uh in terms of uh, it's, it's, it's one interpretation of our motto uh, live free or die um uh and and so we like our local government but our legislature which is basically composed of a bunch of people from local governments it's the biggest legislature in the world uh in, in the country i should say uh the new hampshire house is has 400 members i like to say we don't really need elections we could just take turns um <laughs> and kind of we do actually uh and to my amazement, this is when I was not doing zoning for a while, back in 2017 or 18, New Hampshire House and the Senate, approved by the governor, passed a law that said every community in New Hampshire, every single one that allows single-family houses has to allow what are called accessory dwelling units, basically, you know, the, the code name of that is, is mother-in-law apartment. Uh, or something like that, a separate unit attached to your house in which another person can live. And this slid through. Not, it didn't slide through. It was, it was actually pretty public. I really wasn't paying attention. Uh, and the reason it slid through, the reason it went through the legislature was legislators were asking themselves, where are my kids going to live? Um. They say, yeah, I've got this great asset, and I can transfer this asset to my. Well, where are they going to live? They got to live somewhere else. Uh, they they got to you know move to Kentucky, move to Idaho. Uh, I would I would like them to be able to live in New Hampshire and preferably near, in my town or near my town. And and they all came to that sort of collective dope slap, <laughs> the inspiration that said, "Oh, we got to do something about this." Is this is one of the things they have done. Uh, which which I'm I'm actually quite proud of them for having done so. You know, I had nothing to do with it. Uh, and other states have started to take this on too, of saying the single family house is a wonderful invention, but it doesn't have to be that single a family house. It doesn't have to be just for one family. Uh, uh, you, you can you can share things, and so a lot of the states have have embarked on looking at their local governments and saying. You know, you need to be a little more disciplined. You need to be a little more uh, inclusive, uh, not just of low-income housing, but housing generally. And uh, and I think this is a good sign. 
sometimes it's very clumsy, uh, uh, particularly when you have very large states, California and Texas are big states. And so what's good in Northern California is not necessarily good in Southern California. So it's, it's hard to make general laws uh, that way, but, I'm, but, but they're doing it. They're paying attention to it. So I regard that as good. The other thing that, that has not gotten any traction that I put in the back of zoning rules and when I talk about remedies is what is the problem with NIMBYism? Why are people so worried about their assets? Well, it's because there's two things. One is it's hard to diversify them. And the other is they've because it's it's such a good asset, they've put too much of their wealth into it. And so you know, the first thing everybody wants to do, not everybody, lots of, lots of people now are sort of questioning whether they can do it, is, is buy a house. Uh, not set up a nest egg uh, or uh, not, not invest in a business, not, but, but buy a house because that's the, I've been told this is the way to wealth. Uh, and they're not entirely wrong. My view is we need to make that wealth, that nest egg, a little smaller insofar as we need to bring back capital gains taxes on housing. I'm not saying we should tax the gains away. We should just treat them like other capital gains, which is actually a, in the U.S. favorably taxed. Uh, 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 but that way, people thinking about how should I invest my money? Should I buy a house or put a new wing on my house or buy another house uh, may think, Oh, well, if I sell it, I'll still have to pay capital gains on it. Same as with buying a mutual fund or putting it in my retirement fund or, or, or buying a, 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 starting a new business where the capital gain is, is taxed. Now, so I think this would bring zoning down to earth, not crashing down to earth. But I think the hype about, oh, you're going to ruin my neighborhood because you're putting up a church in across the road or something like that would would start to go away. I don't think it would disappear. Uh, people's preferences are their preferences. People like their neighborhoods as they are. I get that. Uh, but they also understand that change has to occur. And sometimes uh, they have to make, accept uh, some, some risk of that. So my view is if we reduce the attraction of growth stock and housing as growth stock and make it more into that blue chip investment, which we had when zoning was just doing fine uh, and housing was chugging right along. Uh, uh, I, I think we would make a lot. That would have the auxiliary benefit, by the way, of helping to balance the federal budget. <laughs> that right. is really, I mean, we're, we're giving away so much tax money that they're called tax expenditures, things that we tax in other sectors we're not taxing in the housing market. Really, we should tax that. That would really help uh, not only uh, uh, bring people's expectations down to earth, but uh, I should back up on this. Some other people, other economists, respectable people say, really, you should just eliminate the mortgage deduction. And I don't think that's quite right. Because if you're a developer, if you're a commercial developer, you get a mortgage deduction. You pay, you, you take out a loan to build a, an office building or a condominium complex. The mortgage on that loan, the interest on that loan, is deductible. It's a business expense. And so the business expense part of that really is, a, a mortgage as business expenses is really a perfectly reasonable thing in my mind. The difficult, the difference between the uh, the condominium developer 
and the single-family homeowner is that the, the condo developer also has to pay taxes on the profits that he makes. And a lot of those profits are the capital gains, and that's where the homeowner would end up paying. In, in, in my scheme, we need, to, we need to tax the capital gain. I don't think the mortgage deduction is a big deal. We've had the mortgage deduction for 100 years, uh, and, and in the first 50 years, it didn't do anything bad. Uh, it probably built nice, you know, facilitated starter homes. I don't have any th problem with capping it or uh, disallowing it for second and third homes, uh, which it is allowed for, to my to my surprise, uh, 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 when, when I was investigating this. So, uh, I, and I think this would have a salutary effect. I, I take this as one of the salutary effects uh, of the uh, Tax Reform Act of are we. 2020. When did when did uh, um, uh, 2017 was mm. was essentially for a lot of people removing the deduction of state and local income tax, including myself. So I now take the standard deduction, uh, despite uh, 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 and and that actually had a noticeable effect on housing prices, on the yeah. growth of housing prices. If you tease it out enough, and there's some people at Penn that did this at the at the, uh, uh, the, the, the Philadelphia Fed uh, had, had, a, had a nice study of this, and some others as well have, have discovered that it doesn't take a much nudge uh, on the tax side to to bring housing at least to bend the curve a little bit. And I think I think that is generally a good thing. I, I think state and local the deductibility of state and local taxes is is more complex and more fraught in one sense than, uh, than just the deductibility of mortgage. Almost everybody has a mortgage. Uh, so uh, uh, it, yeah. I think bringing it back to the capital gain is, is, is my, uh, this is the undiscussed remedy. Uh, right. Because I actually ran this by uh, a, a conservative group where the National Association of Home Builders thought were there. And the economists there actually didn't bat an eye about that when I said this actually might benefit the home building industry. Because if you make NIMBYs a little less sensitive because they haven't invested in as much from their capital gain uh, uh, side, they haven't, they haven't over-invested, maybe it'll be easier for you guys to build houses. It's not a it's not an incoherent argument. It would take a better entrepreneur or policy entrepreneur than me to to try and sell this argument. But uh, uh, you know, it's a, this is a standby uh, benefit of of I, I, it. Always appalls me that on the other hand, when when people say, "Well, I want to do something about the housing crisis. I make it I want to make it easier for people to buy houses." No, no, that's the cause of the housing crisis. <laughs> That's not the solution, at least at least if you run through my zoning scenario that way. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Just a quick message from our sponsor, Stackwork. Stackwork is a lightning-powered platform for generating high-quality transcripts of all your audio or video content. They combine AI engines and hundreds of human workers all over the world who are paid over the Lightning Network to assemble these transcripts. And that's what lets Stackwork create better, faster, and less expensive transcripts. If you want to learn more about Stackwork, visit stackwork.com. That is S-T-A-K work.com. 
There's another theory I want to bring up, and this is this is a school of thought. Uh, I actually talked about this on my last episode. I was talking with uh, Robert J. Gordon, who wrote The Rise and Fall of American Growth. Yeah. Um, and, and he noted that in the 1970s, there was this slowdown in American growth. And it's very similar to what you note in your book. And mm-hmm. I, I introduced this idea to him, and he wasn't sold completely on it. But I want to hear your views. The idea is that uh, when the U.S. went off the gold standard, in 1971 and stopped that convertibility of dollars into gold that perverted a lot of incentives. And there's all sorts of charts that show big changes in all sorts of economic variables in America from the 1970s forward. It's actually pretty astonishing how many different things seem to have like, like charts that go in perfectly flat, go way up or way down starting in the 1970s, things got out of whack. And the, the idea here for zoning um, might be that if people had the ability to save dollars and know that they could then convert those into gold, a scarce asset, they would not be as likely to try to seek out things that can keep up with inflation, like a house. And so my, my question here to you is, does that theory kind of hold water in your view? And if we go about fixing the money, either going back to a gold standard, some other scarce asset, Bitcoin, for example, if we fix the money, does that then in turn fix some of the problems that that people are, are too focused on with nimbyism and, and being so overextended on your home that you stifle growth? Yeah. Uh, by the way, what, what did Gordon think of that? <laughs> he, he thought there was some merit to the idea. He said he had a, an economist friend who... Uh, believes that all sorts of ills in society are caused by the U.S. going off the gold standard. But he said it wasn't a perfect, he said there was, there was reason to believe that uh, growth in the U.S., uh, I mean, because inflation only happened really in the 70s. It, it had a lull in the 80s, yeah. 90s, and 2000s. And so he said that's not a great explanation for that. But um, he, he, you know, he didn't totally dismiss it. Yeah, I, I, I would be skeptical now. Uh, I, the reason I asked Gordon is he's a very eminent, a, he's a macroeconomist and I am not. And <laughs> he's quite eminent and I am not. And uh, so, so, uh, I, I, but I, I have some pause about that. For one thing, I did teach a course that covered macroeconomics and I covered the, 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 the Bretton Woods and the retreat from Bretton Woods and things like this. And, and my view was that going off the gold standard was, Almost one of those things, like it had to happen. There wasn't any choice but to sort of go off the gold standard. Whether they had to do it as fast as they did is another question. I don't know how much disruption, but they had to go off the gold standard. And going off the gold standard had enormous benefits for the world economy. It just the dollar became the. I mean, the dollar was was the uh, uh, instead of gold, the, the dollar itself became the the means of international trade. And now countries are sufficiently confident they don't even need dollars. And I think as, as a pro-trade guy, uh, I think that's, that's an um, almost unalloyed good. Uh, pro-trade with nasty countries is another problem, of course. Uh, uh, so, so I don't think that, I, I think there, is, there was an upside, but I do agree that there, that there was a downside. On the other hand, People still have precious metals, gold, works of art, things like that that they can invest in. The 
difference between those and a house is that a house is a terribly convenient investment for almost all Americans. You can live in it. You got to live somewhere. After all. I mean, you could you could you could rent, uh, and and you know, lots of lots of people do for for a long long time and are perfectly happy with it. But owning a house is 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 a, a, an American ideal. Uh, I think there's something to it in in substantial sense of people who own homes and live in residential neighborhoods have more of what I call social capital. That makes their communities better. It makes their schools better. Uh, if you know people in your neighborhood, um, and 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 one of the reasons you want to know people in your neighborhood is you own your own house. You, you want those, those the other people with long-term commitments uh, living next to you is generally a good thing. So. So I, 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 I think there are offsetting things. The reason I think that, that zoning, I, I mean, I used, I'm now more confident that, that, that these, these causes uh, of, of growth controls have, uh, uh, are, are part of, this, part of the picture. Um, uh, I used to think that, but when you think it all by yourself, you sort of think, you look at the mirror and say, am I, am I just kind of nutty? <laughs> But now I've convinced other people, or other people I've become convinced, I don't know, that I've convinced that that this is this is an issue, and I think potentially it is a cause of our 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 lagging growth. And that's with I don't know how much, and that's not a good scientific proposition to say I don't know how much. I know the sign though, uh, and that is a lot of the uh, uh, land use uh, regulations have held back a lot of growth in metropolitan areas where we need growth. Silicon Valley should be a bigger place with more housing, and it's not. And it's solely because of uh, well-entrenched zoning laws in, uh, in, the, uh, in the peninsula area. And the same is true of the New York metropolitan area, the Boston area. Uh, these should be bigger places. As bigger mm -hmm. places, they should have better infrastructure, including maybe uh, uh, better commuter transportation and things like this. And they'd be able to afford if they did, uh, uh, but they should be bigger places because they're terribly productive places. They become mm -hmm. reproductive. Uh, I think they've become terribly productive. This is my own uh, macro story, and I would not, not want to tell it in front of people who are able to punch holes in it. But as long as I've got the floor here, uh, I think a lot of our our productivity came from international trade, the finance industry used to finance things in the U.S. Now it finances things all over the world. The computer industry, if I take the analogy of, uh, you know, why was Alexander Graham Bell not as rich as Bill Gates? Uh, the reason is he was limited to the North American market. Uh -huh. The software industry, they figured out that they're not making computers, they're making software, is a worldwide industry, and the U.S. is a leader in that. And that's made us terribly prosperous. This prosperity has spilled over to much of the country. And the parts of the country where they are centered, the East Coast and the West Coast, loosely speaking, need to share it with the rest of the country. They need to allow their kids to move there and be able to buy houses and get to work on time. Uh, so so that's, that's my pitch of how can we increase productivity? We do need to do something about land use regulation. Uh, right. I get the sense that the land use regulations that were put in place almost 100 years ago, many are still in place. And it feels like there's even even outside of the scope of land use, laws in general 
don't really come with expiry dates. But it seems like there, there may be a case for these zoning rules to not necessarily be as effective 100 years later, right? Like, is it that important that you prevent uh, industrial use cases from bleeding out into the suburbs today as it was 100 years ago? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's the, the industries that exist here today in America are not as noisy or as polluting or as, you know, th there's changes that occur, I think, over time that I wonder why the, the zoning regulations that are in place don't have like mechanisms to adjust as communities adjust and as this, the scope of like industry and potential uh, conflicts adjusts. Yeah, um, I, I kind of agree with you in one sense that industry has become less noxious. And apartment houses where you saw those you know, dumbbell tenements in lower Manhattan uh, that, that everybody thought, thought, well, that's a slum. Well, that's just where poor people live, uh, are, are, are actually not bad at all. And, and by the way, they're not fiscally bad because living in apartment houses, you don't have very many kids. Uh, so your schools aren't overburdened and the tax revenues are, are okay. Uh, it, so, so I think loosening these things would not be would not be difficult. I think the framework that we have is is not that difficult to loosen. Zoning is that more flexible. I get this sort of experience on the zoning board, uh, and and not just looking at my own community, but you know seeing what the state is doing and so forth. Zoning is more flexible than you might think. It does indeed, I mean, one of the things I've told my students, I actually showed my students the, the map of Euclid, uh, Ohio, it was challenged in Euclid v. Ambler back in 1926, and then given an updated map of Euclid, Ohio. Not only is the, are the patterns the same, the zoning designations, which are unique for the Euclid, are the same. They haven't changed at all. <laughs> but I don't think the problem with zoning is Euclid, Ohio. They were a pro-development single-family community. They had industry in, in, up by the lake and all the avenues. Uh, so Euclid wasn't itself wasn't the problem. They were flexible enough. They realized that they wanted to have jobs and they needed apartments and so forth. They just didn't want to mix them all together. The real problem, I, I, I take it as, as being the, the far-flung places where development is happening because we can get around and we're not as, you know, we can work at home and not be stuck commuting all the time. And, and development is still restricted, not simply to single family houses, but to single family houses, if at all, on enormous lots. Lots set off in my own town. I'm very critical of it, I'm publicly critical of it. So even though I'm on the zoning board, I'm going to say it. Uh, we, we uh, 15 years ago, adopted by by initiative, voter initiatives, wasn't this planning board's idea, uh, a minimum maker in the rural residential area, which covers three quarters of the town, 10 acres minimum lot size. Wow. It used to be three acre minimum lot size, but you could cluster them so you could get something done. You can't cluster 10 acre lots. And so basically we have zoned our community for billionaires. They were the only people who can want to put up houses and mansions on, on 10 acre lots. That's ridiculous. I say that because other towns have done this. It, it's, it's contagious. Uh, so I think we need to look at lot size itself, and we need to look at the surrogates for lot size, which is the extensive 
protections for wetlands, wildlands, and forests and agriculture, which all of which in some kernel makes some sense, but in a sense of what the opportunity cost is of preserving all that much, you need to think, you know, maybe we don't need to have a setback, wetland setback of 100 feet. Maybe we could do it in 10 feet, or maybe we could uh, uh, manage offsets better. Um, and and it's, it's those things that make it just harder for developers to do something. A 10-acre minimum lot size basically means you can't do anything. It's a cater to your, your billionaires. Uh, right. And, and uh, but, but, but uh, just managing wetlands and managing uh, conservation easements and things like this that are all the product of a well-intentioned in, in movement. I'm not one to stop up and down and say environmental crazy. Uh, I'm, I'm here to say that too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. It can be a bad thing. Right. One other question for you that is tangentially related to zoning is something that I've observed walking through American cities and Canadian cities, and then walking through European cities. And when I walk through American, North American cities, everything's laid out in grids, very square, um, symmetrical. When I walk through European cities, every road is unique and irregular shaped buildings all over the place. How much of that distinction between the two is due to zoning? Um, I don't think that much. Hmm. We do have some European-style cities in the United States. Boston, for example. You can get lost in Boston. You can take four right turns and not end up where they started out <laughs> uh, uh, in Boston. I've been lost in Boston lots of times. And, and Baltimore, Philadelphia is a little more grid-like. Uh, but but their behavior, I don't see it, I don't detect a big behavior, behavioral difference in regard to land use regulation. Uh, I think to some extent our differences is that America is more democratic at the local level. In European countries, local land use is supported by the government. They, they don't want to offend their citizens. But they also realize they got a place to they got to work someplace they got to get to work somehow or another, and so there's a level of government there's a level of, of intervention that isn't quite as localized as it is in the United States, and so I think our, a lot of our differences with with European continental countries in particular is that the administrative state is a little less democratic. I hate to say this because I'm really a Democrat small d guy. Uh, but one of the zoning's uh, land use excesses are the product in part of, of uh, local democracy. And so I think Europe just has a little less democracy and so they can get away with doing that more. Right. And then it maybe is the age of the city as well, maybe a contributing factor where a lot of American cities may have been built uh, with the car in mind, rather than some of the European cities built prior to the car. And th there's some. There's certainly something to that. The the, the older cities. Uh, you recall that a lot of those cities that you see that look old are not old. They were bombed uh, and rebuilt pretty much the way. Nothing more durable than a street grid uh, over time. And forget about those buildings. It's the street grid that makes the difference. But if you really go where, if you go out of the city, and, and 
I'm, I'm a walking tourist too, so I don't walk out of the suburbs in Munich and, and, and see what's there. But if you look at it from Google Earth, I actually do this, did it, used to do this experiment with my students, is I take two cities that are a European city, a, a German, a Frankfurt, Germany, Frankfurt, Alman, uh, and a comparably sized, comparably kind of set U.S. city, Cleveland. Uh, the climate's the same, uh, general size of two and a half million metropolitan area. And do a Google Earth look down, starting in the center of the city, starting the the the, the, the auto in the Bonhoeff in, in, in Frankfurt, the railroad station, and, and move outward 20 miles or some arbitrary amount. Just going slowly with that Google Earth constant altitude and watch the pattern. And I do exactly the same thing in Cleveland, starting with the uh, downtown, the, 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 uh, the Cleveland Tower, and go south towards Parma. Uh, uh, um, and the same 20 miles. The difference is absolutely striking. Once you get out of the city itself, once you get out of the city in Cleveland, the density becomes less and less and less. But you never run out of houses. You, it's it's housing and housing and, and you know small development in some, small towns and things like this. But the density is almost continuous. If you go to Frankfurt and go north, uh, I forget what the name of the city is, one of the, the bottom, bottom cities, uh, and go north the same distance, at the edge of Frankfurt or a near suburb of Frankfurt, you run out of people really quickly. And you see open fields. You see, you know, my right. city. And then you might run into a little town, a little wall fortress town. That's the suburb. They're just as suburbanized, but their suburbs look like their cities. They're high-density suburbs. You go to, from Frankfurt up. I, don't, I forget if Rothenburg is a very cute medieval town that managed not to get bombed. Uh, and, and, and it's adorable, but around that place is open fields, in, open in a way you do not see in America. Mm. The reason here, I think, is that development rights is that, is that in America we started with a fresh land. And so all of those farmers out there own their own land, and they wanted to develop it. They were a force for development. Now, zoning and various regulations can prevent some of the development they'd like to do, but not all of it. And so you get some farmhouses with a place for the kids and then a place for the kids' friends and, and so on, and, and the little village that expands a bit. Uh, and so you never run out of development in in, in, in most American metropolitan areas. In Europe, the difference is who owned the land? The prince owned the land. The people didn't own the land. And so when the prince gets overthrown, who owns the land? It's basically the heirs to the prince, and very often they can't even figure out who, who actually owns the land. The rights are all divided up in, in feudal medieval estates, uh, illegal estates that are really hard to collect. And so development itself is hard to do both politically and legally in in Europe, and it's a lot easier in the U.S. Uh, mm. Take as my model here, Canada. Canada has actually had the same kind of experience, and their cities kind of look more like the U.S. I don't mean to offend Canadians. I love Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. They do look very similar. Um, 
I want to touch on uh, taxation as well, because I know this is an issue you bring up a bunch in the book, and it, it's relatively new to me, the concept of property tax and land tax and things like that. Um, I, I want to first start by asking, why do we have property taxes and not land taxes? I think that's helpful to, to separate. I think we have property taxes that, that include both land and the buildings. That's what, uh, what the basis of most property taxes is, is because it's administratively very easy to do. Or another way of saying it, it's really hard to separate them out. Now, I've actually talked to the town assessor here because I was complaining about my property tax. Uh, I was on the finance committee in town. And and I said, how do you separate out what's, what's really rose in value was land compared to the value. My third of an acre lot is now worth than my uh, worth more. And I think he's actually right about this than, uh, than uh, my house. And the, the question he, he would ask to me was, well, how, how do I assess your land as if it, if I want to assess your property as if it had no house on it, can you pick up your house and move it away for a while? <laughs> the house is too attached to the land. And so for most assessors, taxing the upside, the, the house side and the downside, the land side, makes almost as much sense as taxing the north side separately from the south side. Mm. They're units. They're put together. I think zoning actually makes property taxation more sensible. And I think that's actually arguably a good thing insofar as in the old days, before zoning, if you owned a big house in a city and you didn't like the neighborhood's tendency, you had this giant house, you were the owner of the mill, uh, and uh, uh, you didn't like the fact that your employees were moving too close to you. Uh, and so you sold your house and moved out to the suburbs. Well, what happened to that house? It got subdivided into apartment houses. It was, or, or torn down, or whatever. Uh, but there weren't any restraints on, on building whatever the, the, the developer wanted to. Now, if that same house was being sold, it would be very difficult to change the zoning. It's not impossible to change the zoning so that that could happen. And very often it doesn't happen. In fact, sometimes the opposite happens. They turn it into a historic structure uh, that, uh, uh, that, that can't be altered without lots of... Right. So, so I think in some sense... Zoning is part of the property tax system insofar as it makes buildings more like land by making it difficult to remove them, to remove their use. In one tax sense, that's a good thing. There's, there's, you know, there's a, a, a national, a little fringy uh, movement called the, the, the Georgism, the land tax, where Henry George, a character from the late 19th century, uh, Interesting, really interesting person. Uh, but one of his big things was that we should not tax capital. We should not tax buildings. We should not tax labor. We should just tax land. And the reason the economists sort of think, that's actually not the worst idea we've heard from a populist uh, speaker, and because land cannot be moved. So a right. land tax, a good tax from an economist standpoint, maybe not from the owner's standpoint, but a good tax from the economist standpoint, is one that can't be avoided. If you, mm. want to, if you want to tax college professors as opposed to other kinds of, uh, uh, of teachers, people will move from being college professors to other kinds of activities. They can move. It's, 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 a, it's a flexible. If you want to uh, 
tax the land on which they, they live. No, they can't move their land. Yeah, they can sell it, but then the buyer's got the same thing, got the same problem. He's got an asset or she's got an asset that cannot be moved. So immobility is actually a good thing from the tax standpoint. And so zoning kind of rationalized this property tax. And, and I actually dug up some stuff. I think I may have quoted this in zoning rules, those out-of-the-way uh, paragraphs, where the uh, city of Pittsburgh is saying we need to adopt zoning because not, not so much because uh, we need to adopt zoning because our residential property is be, being devalued by these uses that are moving, these industrial uses. Pittsburgh, they're really industrial, uh, uh, that, are, that are devaluing houses. So, yeah, we've got these great jobs and taxable property there, but the taxable property of the homeowners is going down. Uh, and, and so zoning was kind of our way of rationalizing this this property being too footloose. It wasn't just the employees and the owners who were able to move about, but the, uh, the mobility. So mobility of the, the buildings themselves. Don't really think of them as being mobile, but you can, buildings last finite lives and they can be, uh, they can be altered. Uh, so zoning is a way of, of doing that. And in that sense, I don't think zoning is so bad. Um, mm, right. And then, Another thing that's related to the taxation uh, for properties that you mentioned in the book, property tax, basically goes directly to to school districts, right? And, and, About two thirds of property tax go to school districts, right? Right. So a big chunk of that, and then that's that's an education budget for the community. Um, but I think you also mentioned in the book that there's some people that aren't going to have kids and who aren't going to get to use that. Is that a, is that the right structure then to have? the taxation happening on the property rather than on the, you know, on the, the parents who, who are actually consuming the education resources and, and using that and kind of like having their kids go through school. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that distinction. Okay. The distinction I draw there, and, and here I'm going to sound like a rapid socialist in a way, or a communitarian, <laughs> uh, is, that, is that school kids make your community better. Why do they make them better? I mean, Kids are nice. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to a high school basketball game at the end of the day here. Uh, it's fun. I don't have any kids in high school. Um, and uh, so they, they make the, com the community not so much by the education of the kids. That, of course, makes a difference. That's why the parents move here. But because you, as a resident, whether you have kids or not, get to know more people in your community. And that allows you to provide the bottom-up good public goods. So you need to get the town to pay attention to the potholes down the street. If you just call them up by yourself, they'll get to it in time. If you call your neighbors and say, let's call the town or let's show up at the uh, at town hall meetings, that'll get their attention. How do you know your neighbors if, if they don't work in the same building as you do. You know them through their kids, through your kids. Or you know them through friends of your kids. Mm -hmm. so, you know, one of the most primordial things, you know, the Darwinian thing that happens is when you have kids, you want to know who your kids are playing with. And in particular, you want to know who their parents are. As a result, right. you will get to know those parents, even though you had nothing to do with them, indeed, almost nothing in common. In fact, you might not even like them very much otherwise. You'll get to know them. You'll tolerate them, maybe even become friends with them. 
because of your kids, because of your kids going to pu local public schools. Right. Why is property tax a good way of financing this? For one thing, the property can't move away. It's hard to move the property away. They can sell it, and, but really, the, the other is that that the uh, uh, I'm going to backtrack on my train of thought here. Um, the other benefit that somebody like me, even if I was a selfish person paying no attention to my neighbors or didn't care about my community, I would still care a lot about the schools. Right. Because I'm going to sell to somebody who cares about the schools. And, and that's so I'm not going to go out there and say, cut the budget there. What these, I mean, send, them to, send them to private schools. Give them vouchers and let them go somewhere else. No, I want to support my local public schools because my prospective buyers of my house care about that. Uh, and so, you know, that's the uh, uh, that's the, the the benefit of, of having a local property tax. Uh, property tax as a statewide tax sucks. We know that from history. Uh, uh, the state used to tax property because they couldn't tax anything else. They didn't have enough records to tax income and sales. And really, it was a hot mess. You read the late 19th century. I've actually read commentaries about this. And you understand why some economists would say, that's the worst possible tax. Well, yeah, at the statewide level, if it was the only tax source, it was terrible. Because everybody wanted to hide their assets. Uh, they were taxing chickens. They were taxing everything <laughs> that, that they could possibly identify. Uh, and and once, once you got modern accounting methods and, uh, uh, and business methods, it was possible to tax sales and then tax gasoline revenues and then tax uh, liquor revenues and other things. You didn't need this. The state did not need this property tax. So the property tax is only a good tax for a local tax. And that's only because people care about their property values. Mm, you I see. care about your property value, you care about other people's property value. I don't want my neighborhood to run down. I want mm. the community to be attractive to other people. Uh, even if, I, even if I'm misanthropic, which I'm not a philanthropic person, uh, but even if I didn't care very much, I wouldn't be out there to trash the local property tax. Right. And then these property taxes, they also scale up and down with the size of a property, right? The, the assessed value. So if I have a home that's 1,000 square feet and you have one that's 10,000 square feet, you're going to be paying more in, in property taxes, yeah, correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and this and this brings up the, the, the one thing that I think is a, a drawback of the property tax, well, it's a drawback of many taxes, is you can avoid that by not building your house up as much. Mm. So if I thought about adding a extra room to my house, uh, I would have to get a building permit, and the assessor would notice. That's one reason I have to get a building permit, so the assessor can notice. And my property taxes would go up. That works into my decision, and, they, and, my, and, and I may think, well, maybe I don't need the, that, that extra room, and maybe I'll stay crowded. So that's, that's kind of a deadweight loss of that tax of doing it. That is, upside, that is, in my mind, is offset by so many other subsidies to the house <laughs> uh, <laughs> that I got on my federal taxes that I'll have a bigger house, I can convert, you know, sell it for more value when I'm, when I pass on uh, to, my, to my offspring. Uh, that, that I don't think it's very I don't think it's very important uh, to do that, but but it is a drawback. I don't, I don't want to uh, uh, pretend it's, it's not. Right. Okay. 
I want to finish this conversation off talking about the future of zoning and where we go from here. So we've we've laid out some of the pros and cons and some of the nuances of zoning as it exists today. Um, what what do you think the path forward looks like? If you could kind of chart out a path for zoning regulations across America, I know there's nuances in different parts of America, but if you could craft a, a plan and a strategy forward to adjust and modify zoning regulations, let's say out the next 50 years, what might that plan look like? And what are some of the changes that you might consider making? Imagine you have full authority to make these changes. Well, having full authority and having full knowledge are different things. I don't <laughs> know what places in in Euclid, Ohio, what, what they think about their community. I've been there. I'm actually... You know, this is a, sort of a sort of a mecca for for zoning freaks like myself. Uh, so I've seen the site, but but I don't know the community very well. It's now it's now largely African American, by the way. And uh, and for me to tell them, you need to have these kinds of constraints. You need to rezone this to do this, that, and the other thing. There's a whole layer of people beneath me who are a lot closer to them and their needs. Now. Acknowledging that they shouldn't be the exclusive arbiters of what their community looks like because what their community looks like affects the entire Cleveland metropolitan area. So you need a a a, a nexus of of uh, uh, not actually the right word. Uh, you, you need a, a network of people communicating and communicating with some authority. The, the reforms I probably would say these are pretty good reforms. Actually, the end of zoning rules, which I think nobody gets to do, have 12, 12 ideas to, 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 to share uh, and uh, for, for for resolving that uh, the, the problems of zoning and housing. Uh, but but one of the things that that, it, that would help, uh, I think, is is having relatively clear rules. The, that you will stick to and that a third party, namely the courts or some other arbiter, will enforce, would actually make it more sensible, would actually allay the anxieties of homeowners of saying, here's the rules, we know this is going to happen, and and, uh, and, and we'll back them up. And, and people who want to develop things, that is to say change things, will know that if they get into this process, they're not going to be hammered at the last minute by the discovery of of, of of some principle or some some lives in being that, uh, that they had no reason to expect. So some some elements of clarity in in the process would, would help. The other, I guess, I would say is I'm not displeased by the movement towards the state. I am a little more anxious about getting the federal government involved more mm. than it is. We clearly, we need to continue to enforce regulations that discourage racism. It's a cancer of our society. We need to do something about it. The fact that things have gotten better for black people doesn't mean they're as happy as they should be. And we, we have an obligation, we white people have an obligation to help them get there. So federal government needs to enforce these things. That said, we need to we need to let development happen, and having federal agencies 
swoop in from next to nowhere and saying, oh, that's a wetland or that's where a, 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 a Like a historical or, ruin or something might make a habitat is very unhelpful. So mm. I would say a lot of the environmental regulations could be moved to the states. And you say, well, what if they're irresponsible? Well, then they bear the response, the consequences of being irresponsible, and maybe the basketball tournament won't show up at your in your capital if you're just if you're if you're too out of step with things. So I think there's a discipline there that we can decentralize environmentalism as well. I wouldn't do, I wouldn't decentralize uh, uh, racial uh, standards, by the way. Uh, 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 I mean, that is a, that's a national problem. But environmental issues are much more localized and much more handleable by people on the ground who live with them and see them all the time. And I mean, I've... I've I'm almost talking out of turn here. I'm talking out of school, but uh, we have uh, 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 floodplain regulations uh, where somebody wants to build something that's near a floodplain. We, they have to go to Washington, D.C. and get a letter from several agencies that then we have to see and approve and then see the state approve. Really, I think we know what the water level is. And what it's likely to be, we don't have to be running down to Washington, D.C. to have them tell us or have their consultants, the, the developers' consultants, do all that work, uh, which um, in identifiable situations is definitely discouraged development that I thought, mm. I myself thought was fairly sensible. In the beginning of your book, when you were talking about the uh, the state of urban affairs before zoning, where people tend to live and work in similar places, they had high trust communities. It got me thinking about this kind of trend towards remote work we've seen in the last few years. Yeah. It seems to me like 1800s, late 1800s, people are living and working in the same place. Then the automobile comes in and now there's this ability to separate. And then now we have a push back in that same direction to people living and working in similar places with remote work, I wonder if that opens up the ability for people to once again self-govern and kind of have these informal systems that we had before zoning. Is that is that a possibility, do you think? Or, you know, now that we've opened this box of zoning regulations and requirements, do you think it's it's a lost cause to try and put that back and, and revert to like informal self-governing? Yeah. Um... The, the the remote work issue is is I find interesting. Um, I've I've uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pass on just one one or two anecdotes from the area where I know about remoteness, and that is schooling. There was a movement twenty years ago of uh, we're going to you know and I, I colleagues and, and other professors say. Oh, I can now teach my classes remotely. I don't have to show up at class at all. And we'll just tape it and I'll send it in, mail it in, so to speak. That didn't happen. <laughs> Come on. This, <laughs> this is this is this is a little niche industry for learning how to be a real estate agent or something like that. Not for getting a general education. You need to be around people. And then we have this unfortunate experiment, the COVID isolation, where we have the techniques, we have the technology to do remote learning. 
People had to buy into it. It wasn't a matter of choice in many places. And it was terrible. It was just <laughs> a disaster. Kids learn when they're in the presence of other kids. And part of the learning is how to be in the presence of other kids and how to be a decent human being and reciprocate and, and, and love your neighbor and so forth. All those things are really difficult to learn uh, on a screen. Uh, <laughs> here I am. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so I, think, I think that's, that's an overblown possibility. I don't think, right. on the other hand, that the decline in commuting and the surplus of office space is, is an illusion. It's, it's, it's something we will have to adjust to. Uh, this is something I think we need to adjust to in the same sense we need to adjust to the housing shortage, the commercial it's, it's, it's almost like a Sesame Street uh, experiment here. Uh, I've got this bag. I've got these marbles. Can we share and put my marbles in your bag? We've got these <laughs> commercial areas and offices that are underutilized. We've got a lot of people who can't find a place to live. Can we, make, can we do this? Uh, this is something that needs some nudges. I don't think it necessarily means we just throw out zoning. I don't think even if I wanted to, I would throw out zoning. You know, if I had that deadly power that you attribute hypothetically to me, I would actually do it. Uh, I think people know things that I can't possibly know, and they should have a lot of control, but not exclusive control. And so they need some nudges to make these transformations happen that, that, that are necessary. They are happening to some extent. So I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just you know, a full guy, uh, kind of an optimist. I look at this trend and uh, uh, but as as you, you might have noticed, I've been writing about zoning for almost fifty years, and uh, uh, the last ten years of my life have been optimistic. People are realizing yeah. that what I thought was a problem is a problem, partly because the consequences are becoming evident in the street. People sleeping under bridges, and in the business world where they can't hire people to uh, to, to come and get entry level jobs because they can't find a house. Uh, so th this has actually become salient. I think the American system is resilient enough to respond to it. I, don't, I do think we need to have nudges and pressure from the top for the lower level governments to do their job, not to displace them from their job, but to do their job, uh, which is not a, not a responsible kind of job. You're the stewards of your community, the stewards of your land. and you need to let you need to share uh, with other people who will be equally interested in stewarding your land. So, it, it, I quote this Robert. I'm probably one of the few economists who, in a in a book at the end of the chapter, first chapter, quotes Robert Frost, uh, a poem, which is uh, called "America is Hard to See." A very complex, interesting poem, uh, a little bit dour, uh, uh, a little bit pessimistic on Frost's part, uh, which. It is the idea that the, the closing words are how to crowd, put off the time until we see of how to crowd and still be kind. Mm. We need to crowd a little bit. We need to be kindly in doing so. We need to understand that the people there aren't evil people. They're worried people. And we need to allay some of their worries. Uh, but we don't need to let them just do whatever they want. Right. 
One other technology change that we're kind of on the cusp of, I don't know if we've really seen many of the effects yet, but it seems like it's bound to happen is a shift towards driverless vehicles is underway. And we're seeing we've Google and we have Tesla and a couple others that are kind of piloting projects in this space. And I, I don't know for sure. You'll be, you're the expert here. So I, I think, can you tell me if I'm wrong? Are, are there restrictions in, in US businesses on, uh, if you're to buy a plot of land for your, for your business, that you have to have a certain number of, of parking spots? I believe that's a, that's some kind of like rule. I don't know if that's a nationwide thing, but I, I believe I read that somewhere. It's certainly embedded in the planning process for, for new development is finding parking spaces. And mm -hmm. uh, okay. that's always been a controversial thing. Here's the thing that's happening, though, is this is a case where the critics of parking are winning. A lot of new development in, in my own hypersensitive low-tone town are now, don't have parking requirements or have much reduced parking requirements because we're now convinced, empirical evidence shows, that people, households who live within walking distance of their jobs, like I do, uh, uh, make do with one car. To expect right. to do no cars is is unreasonable unless you're looking in a place rich in public transportation like New York or some other place uh, uh, where you don't need a car at all or you just rent a car when you need it. But the big the, the big addition to, to automobiles is that second or third car, and people are now realizing that they don't need it. If there's not mm -hmm. space for my third, for my second car, maybe I just won't have a second car. Maybe I'll just right. make do with zip cars or make do with uh, 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 Ubers, uh, uh, things like this. So I think there are technologies that are really helping this out without too much wholesale, let's build a giant rail transportation system, uh, which which this is, a, this is actually has not too much to do directly with zoning, but I've never been persuaded that uh, these rail, these rail uh, projects uh, are, are a good idea for most cities. Yes, you can't do right. subways in New York, but you could, you could alter the subways in most other places and allow buses to go through them and give them great headway uh, and then go out in the streets and distribute their passengers and pick them up. It makes much more sense than having this fixed rail fixation that uh, so many so many urban planners can do it's it's, it's regarded as a article of faith that, uh, you, that when you talk about mass transportation you have to talk about rail transportation which is five <laughs> percent of all mass transportation and the real mass transportation of course the automobile we're rationalizing the automobile by timeshare that's actually what ubers are and by people and and, and the reduced parking requirements are both a nudge in that direction, which I regard as a, generally a good thing, and, and and a reflection of that trend of, yeah, I, I don't really need to have that second car. Uh, mm -hmm. car. Well, if if we have fully driverless cars, it it introduces the possibility of never needing any parking because your car that you're renting is now. As soon as it drops you off, it's picking up the next guy. It's charging on its own. It's it's automatically doing all these things, and it could very well be on the roads twenty four seven. And I think a lot about okay, in a in a future where all parking lots, just for for argument's sake, all parking lots are not needed, what then happens to all that land? Because that's got to be a, a huge portion of a city's land space 
think about all the parking spaces out front of a Walmart or something like that is, is now not needed. What, what does that change about the way zoning might work in a city? Well, the, the, you're right. It would free up some land for more intensive use. I, I want to back up to fully driverless cars, and I, I don't need to paint a picture of what the driverless car is. The driverless car has passengers in it, but not But here's the option that I think is really important. The option is it can be self-driving, but a driver is behind and potentially at the wheel and in charge of the car versus everybody's a passenger is basically like a bus that's being driven by a computer. People hate that option. Mm. People do not like driving on, having vehicles drive past their houses, driving past themselves that are essentially piloted by a computer or by bank of computers uh, in some far off direction. They really, it lo- really is an invasion of your space. And here's why I think it is true. And that is because driving is a social experience. You relate in much different ways than in recognizable ways than you relate to people that you see in the same room or that you, you and I see each other. Uh, we relate to one another as people. The driverless car is an invasion, an intrusion that people really dislike. And one of the experiments I remember reading about is, uh, I think it it may have been Google, may have been uh, uh, another company, that may have been Tesla, that was experimenting with driverless cars and driving them through Arizona neighborhoods. People would come out of their houses and throw rocks at them. (laughs) They really hated them. It's like, you're in, in a way. I mean, people come drive through my neighborhoods with uh, 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 with student drivers. They're you know driver training schools. We smile. <laughs> Somebody's learning to drive. We will will steer clear. But nonetheless, it's not. It, it's it's a social experience. Whereas we think we're experimented when on when we see a driverless vehicle coming through. I think this is a very widespread hostility to having a, a vehicle in motion that is essentially piloted by somebody else. It's, 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 it's the same reason, I think, that people really hate getting tickets from automated ticket makers. You can, you can mm-hmm. issue these, they take a picture of your license plate, and they send it to you, and uh, there's no cop on the way. Uh, and you don't have to stop to do it. It's, it's, all, it's all done automatically. Very efficient. Right. And really, you hate those. I, I say the <laughs> personal experience. I got a ticket in uh, Paradise Valley, Arizona that way. And I was, I cannot say the descriptions that I would require to, to respond to this. I, I didn't think the amount of the fine was terribly unreasonable, but if a cop had stopped me and said, why are you doing 40 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour? Well, officer, I just got off the plane, blah, blah, blah. I had a chance to tell my story. I wouldn't expect him to not give me a ticket, but I have a chance to tell my story. I get a ticket in the mail. I call a rental car company. They say, there's nothing we can do about it. That's just the way they do it. It's down there. And, I'm, and, I, and I hate Paradise Valley's parking infusion for a long time. <laughs> I think that's the reason we don't do it, by the way. I think feedback from that experience 
is this is where local democracy actually helps the driver, as it were. Uh, uh, England has these, you see these in Europe, they have these automatic tickets to go 10 miles or 10 kilometers over the limit and on, on the M3 in, in England, you get a ticket. And there's nobody to complain to, and there are people who go out to those uh, uh, those kiosks where they uh, have the, and, and start attacking them. <laughs> yeah. I feel for them. I wouldn't do it myself. But I feel <laughs> and, and you would too. So I think there's a limit to automation. There's a kind of sociability that we need even in law enforcement, in driving especially. I mean, the, we read about the bad sociability of driving from, from road rage, but there's also road love. They're mm. who let you in, yeah. a long line of cars, and they say, we'll wave you through. That's the way somebody can give a you know, random act of kindness, uh, letting a truck get out of a long line of vehicles uh, or, or uh, waving somebody uh, across the street when you're not obviously obligated to do that. Um, right. It's definitely going to introduce some changes to our social fabric. I think that's yes, an important point. Yes. And the changes that, that I would not think I, I would not look forward to, but then I'm, I'm of advanced years. <laughs> as, <laughs> as you might have noticed in my difficulty getting <laughs> onto this. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it, something would be lost and, 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 uh, and we need to. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be interesting yeah. to watch the evolution of it. Um, before you go, I, I want to just finish off with one more kind of thing for the audience. Anyone who is looking to participate in their community, shape some of the zoning rules in their area, do you have any advice for the, for them to start? Like, what are some of the most high impact things they can do to shape the community and to to make their voice heard in their local area? Well, it, it does depend on the community. If you're in a very big city, it, to some extent, I mean, there, there are decentralized neighborhood associations that you can join, and you can be a voice in those associations. In a small town, it's a surprising number of, uh, and maybe just, I, I think it's true in lots of places, but uh, these uh, uh, planning boards and zoning boards, commissions and historic commissions and things like that, they're usually volunteer. Uh, so, so, what you need to do, there are two things you need to do. The first step is go and attend some of the meetings. See what they're like. See if you'd actually like to be on the other side uh, and then learn something about it. You don't need to be a full-blown lawyer to do it, although some of them sound like they're lawyers. And then see if you can find somebody in the local government who might nominate you to be a member of these. My experience lately is uh, we're you know, just because of... Uh, the, the demographic profile of so many communities, we volunteers are needed. <laughs> mm. uh, you have a shortage of volunteers. So, so if, it, if you were willing to take that step, learn something about it. Uh, don't go in with both boots on and say, I'm going to do, make all the changes. Attend a few meetings, see what's going on. Um, but you really don't have to be, one of the things I have, have you know, talked to people, perspective about being on the zoning board, and I am, I am a, a zoning official, and they say, well, you, you must know the zoning backwards and forwards. No, I do not. And <laughs> A, I have a bunch of zoning administrators who will tell me what's, what's relevant, and B, I can look it up as I go. It's much more piecemeal. You should, of course, read, if you're on the zoning board, read the whole thing sometime. 
I haven't memorized it. I don't know what Section 803 actually is. Uh, 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 I have to look it up. And it's not just because of a bad memory. People with good memories uh, are <laughs> a rare person would, would know that. Uh, somebody who works, you know, it's only an administrator might know that. But uh, uh, these things are much more manageable, much more divisible than they might look from the outside. You don't have to be a super expert to be able to participate in this process. Is the is the uh, uh, I guess the, the advice, the insider advice I would offer. Uh, awesome. And then finally, uh, where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Uh, just Google Bill Fischel at Dartmouth. And cool. I'll show up there and you, you'll be guided to my, my webpage. Is, it's a little bit dated, but I haven't done that much in the last few years. Uh, and it explains what, what I, my, my career path. Uh, it's not all zoning, although it's, it's very much centered about local government, from which zoning is... Zoning got me into local government. I developed a theory of local government. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm exploring the institutions of local government. My, my most recent project is trying to figure out what counties do. Awesome. How, how well, thank you? you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you for writing this book. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and uh, hope you can do it again sometime soon.